Many of the powerful questions raised by Othello arise from the way that Shakespeare uses language. In this episode, we'll hear Shakespearean actors performing some key speeches from the play. Then we'll hear a discussion of the language and themes of these speeches from Farah Karim Cooper, Head of Higher Education and Research at Shakespeare's Globe and Professor of Shakespeare Studies at King's College London. This first speech comes from Act One, when Othello is called before the Senate to explain how he came to marry Desdemona. Her father loved me, oft invited me, still questioned me the story of my life from year to year, the battles, sieges, fortunes that I have passed. I ran it through even from my boyish days to the very moment that he bade me tell it, wherein I spake of most disastrous chances, of moving accidents by flood and field, of hair's breadth scapes in the eminent deadly breach, of being taken by the insolent foe and sold to slavery, of my redemption thence, and portents in my travailous history, wherein of entrees vast and deserts idle, rough quarries, rocks and hills whose heads touch heaven, it was my hint to speak. <laughs> Such was the process. And of the cannibals that each other eat, the anthropophagi and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders. <laughs> this to hear would Desdemona seriously incline. But still the house affairs would draw her thence, whichever as she could with haste dispatch, she'd come again and with a greedy ear devour up my discourse, which I, observing, took once a pliant hour and found good means to draw from her a prayer of earnest heart that I would all my pilgrimage delate, whereof by parcels she had something heard, but not intentively. I did consent, and often did beguile her of her tears when I did speak of some distressful stroke that my youth suffered. My story being done, she gave me for my pains a world of sighs. She swore in faith twas strange, twas passing strange, twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful. She wished she had not heard it, yet she wished that heaven had made her such a man. She thanked me and, and bade me if I had a friend that loved her. I should but teach him how to tell my story, and that would woo her. <laughs> Upon this hint I spake. She loved me for the dangers I had passed, and I loved her that she did pity them. This only is the witchcraft I have used. In this scene... Othello's explaining to the Doge and the Venetian Senate exactly how he and Desdemona came together. In the first part of the speech, we learn that Brabantio, Desdemona's father, invited Othello to his house on many occasions. Still questioned me, the story of my life. So the word still in Shakespeare's time means always. Othello then uses the word oft when he says oft invited me. Oft and still emphasizes the frequency of the visits 
and perhaps the intimacy of the friendship that is developing between Othello and Brabantio. And I think it's something people don't really think about often is that relationship and how Brabantio might feel betrayed by Othello as well as by Desdemona. Othello tells the Senate what he told Brabantio, the exploits, adventures of his life from boyhood to the very present moment, but also his misfortunes and traumas. The speech is so rich that we often miss a very important detail that Othello was sold to slavery, and that Brabantio wanted to hear about it often. So we catch a glimpse here of the slave trade, but Othello is not a slave anymore. He represents the black ex-slave and migrant striving to become part of white European familial and societal structures. But problematically here, we realize that Brabantio and Desdemona possibly glamorize slavery in their desire to hear of Othello's experiences time and again. This is the sort of white gaze uh, that uh, is often talked about in terms of um, uh, listening to or watching movies and stories about um, slavery in the past. What Othello emphasizes, though, is that he is a traveler. He's seen the world and worlds in a period where not everyone travels widely because of the difficulty and danger. Uh, now, travel narratives or writing were quite popular in this period because the world was being explored and seemed incredibly foreign, exotic, and otherworldly. So Othello in this speech is embodying this otherworldliness, and his captive audience are mesmerized by his reports of cannibals, or natives to various islands and deserts, the anthropophagi, literally meaning man-eaters. I mean, this is something that would be extraordinary to um, to patricians living in Venice in their very protective, privileged worlds. Othello then demonstrates how Desdemona leans in to listen closely. She had to keep leaving the, the, the room to take care of household matters. This really emphasizes her gendered position in this triangle. <clears throat> when Othello remarks on this, we get a sense of the heavily demarcated spaces in Renaissance homes. Um, the masculine domain is full of stories and adventure, dangerous exploits. We hear about man-eating natives. And Desdemona invades this space to, quote, with greedy ear, devour up this discourse. And what's interesting here is Shakespeare's use of sensory language. Um, it, it's sort of in Shakespeare's time, um, the, the senses were a really important storytelling device, actually. It kind of aligns here with the rest of the play's invest investment in the senses. Uh, the senses were placed in, in this time period in a hierarchy. Sight and sound were often considered the, the top most respectable senses, while smell and then taste and touch are at the bottom. All of the senses were the sort of portals of the body, and through these portals, knowledge entered the body. Um, and uh, this, the senses of, uh, of um, taste and touch, unfortunately, are the two senses that actually sin happens through. Uh, so we have almost an invocation here of Eve and the devil from the book of Genesis. Eve listened intently to Satan's rhetoric, his story of acquiring knowledge and what it will bring. And she devoured the apple and his discourse as well. 
So that's a really interesting sort of analogy that seems to be implicit in his use of this idea of devouring up his discourse. We also get a kind of commingling of the senses, which Shakespeare loved to do. The ear is linked to sound and hearing, but here it is tasting, eating, devouring. Desdemona responds to Othello's story as an ideal audience member. The purpose of drama, of course, is to move the audience, to make them feel emotions and respond to the emotion of the play. Desdemona feels compassion. She's moved to empathy. She fears the stories and feels for Othello's plights. Her emotions then move her to love him. The way he describes their love is through this vehicle of storytelling and narrative and the feedback loop that this creates. And this is the ideal feedback loop in an early modern theater as well. So Othello finishes on the point that this is the only witchcraft he has used, this storytelling. Now, witchcraft is an interesting point of reference here. It not only demonizes gender, but it also demonizes race as well. When Brabantio asks Othello in the Senate, what witchcraft did you use to tempt Desdemona? He alludes to the witchcraft lore of the European Renaissance, which insisted that its roots were diabolic, that it was practiced by women and by foreigners. And what many scholars miss here is the racism of the suggestion. Blackness was a color associated with the devil and the diabolic. The devil spawns witches, and witches therefore had supernatural powers that threatened the status quo and that threatened male power. And here, it's white male power. Here, Brabantio is suggesting there's no way Desdemona could fall for a black man of her own accord. He raised her better than that, so there must have been witchcraft, some supernatural element, and Othello must be commanding those elements. Othello wisely points out by recounting Brabantio's fascination with his stories that he was exposed to the same charms as Desdemona was. This speech comes from Act Two, just after Iago has told Rodrigo that Desdemona and Cassio are in love. Rodrigo has exited and Iago, alone on stage, addresses this soliloquy to the audience. That Cassio loves her. I do well believed that she loves him tis apt and of great credit. The more, howbeit that I endure him not, is of a constant, loving, noble nature, and I dare think he'll prove to Desdemona a most dear husband now. I do love her too. Not out of absolute lust, though peradventure I stand accountant for as great a sin, but partly led to diet my revenge. For that I do suspect the lusty moor hath leapt into my seat. The thought whereof doth like a poisonous mineral gnaw my innards, and nothing can or shall content my soul till I am evened with him wife for wife. Or failing so, yet that I put the more at least into a jealousy so strong that judgment cannot cure. Which thing to do? If this poor trash of Venice whom I trace for his quick hunting stand the putting on, I'll have our Michael Cassio on the hip. Chapter 
Abuse him to the moor in the rank garb, for I fear Cassio with my nightcap too. Make the moor thank me, love me, and reward me for making him egregiously an ass and practicing upon his peace and quiet even to madness. Tis here, but yet confused. Knavery's plain face is never seen till used. Here, Iago is speculating, turning over and over in his mind what his plans should be, what his plans are. He's playing with thoughts, weighing up one set of motivations for his actions over another. But he is self-contradictory. We've seen throughout the play how he talks about Othello, often in very racist terms, objectifyingly. Here, he seemingly speaks well, of Othello. The more, howbeit, that I endure him not, is of a constant, loving, noble nature. And I dare think he'll prove to Desdemona a most dear husband. So we learn that even Iago recognizes that Othello is constant, meaning loyal. He's loving or gentle, and he's noble in his nature. Now, when Elizabethans and Jacobeans describe something in nature, they're referring to the very essence of the thing. This is an extraordinary revelation. Iago can see Othello's essence. He can see that his essence is loving and noble. Surely this means he's not a racist. But what does he say next? Partly led to diet my revenge for that I do suspect the lusty moor hath leapt into my seat, he thought... Uh, the thought whereof doth like a poisonous mineral gnaw my inwards. So this is an interesting idea. He says, um, he seems to contradict his own assessment that he just made of Othello's character when he presumes Othello, the lusty moor, has leapt into his seat, in other words, had an affair with his wife, Amelia. This seems to directly counter his previous emphasis on Othello's noble nature and his loyalty how can you be loyal and noble and sleep with your friend's wife? This contradiction destabilizes and undermines Iago's reasoning strategy here, which makes us doubt that any of his motives are strong. The next part of the speech sets out Iago's methodology using disparaging terms. He doesn't like Othello, he says, when he indicates that he can't endure him, but he doesn't really like anybody he doesn't seem to like anybody in the play. He plots carefully now, saying he will speak ill of Cassio to Othello and cloud his judgment. At the end of the speech, he circles back to another contradictory statement and leaves us confused as to how he really feels about Othello. He will isolate Othello by proving he is being deceived by his lieutenant and his wife. And then, only then, will Othello trust only Iago, and he will love Iago. Iago seems to revel in this idea of Othello loving him, even though he sinisterly enjoys it will be from making Othello an ass or a fool. This dialogue comes from Act 4, as Amelia helps Desdemona prepare for bed. Othello has accused Desdemona of committing adultery, and Desdemona wonders if any woman is capable of wronging her husband in that way. I would not do such a wrong for the whole world. Why, the wrong is but a wrong i'er the world. 
and having the world for your labour, there's a wrong in your own world and you might quickly make it right. I do not think there is any such woman. Yes, a dozen. And as many to the vantage as would store the worlds they played for. But I do think it is their husbands' faults if wives do fall. Say that they slack their duties and pour our treasures into foreign laps. Or else break out in peevish jealousies, throwing restraint upon us. Or say they strike us. Or scant our former having in despite. Why, we have galls. And though we have some grace, yet have we some revenge. Let husbands know their wives have sense like them. They see and smell and have their palates both for sweet and sour as husbands have. What is it that they do when they change us for others? Is it sport? I think it is. And doth affection breed it? I think it doth. It's frailty that thus errs. It is so, too, and have not we affections, desires for sport and frailty as men have? Then let them use us well. Else let them know the ills we do, their ills instruct us so. In this intimate scene, Desdemona and her gentlewoman, Emilia, who is also Iago's wife, are talking about infidelity. Strikingly, a sort of proto-feminist message emerges from their conversation. Desdemona has said she would not be unfaithful to her husband for all the world. It seems like a rhetorical expression, but Emilia contemplates it literally. She wouldn't cuckold her husband for simple pleasures or individual items like rings and clothes, and these are all very expensive commodities. But she might cheat on him for all the world. Desdemona says it would be wrong, and Amelia's dizzying logic seems to make sense. Why the wrong is but a wrong in the world, and having the world for your labor tis a wrong in your own world, and you might quickly make it right. She uses the device of repetition here, repeating world, to make the point that the world is what is at stake here. Wrong is repeated three times to emphasize the moral nature of the deed that they're actually discussing. But if Desdemona did do this wrong and therefore inherited the world, well, the world would be hers and she could rewrite the code of morality and make her wrong right. This syllogistic reasoning demonstrates Amelia's wit and also the honest openness that the two women share. Desdemona expresses a sort of naive innocence when she says she cannot imagine there ever being such a woman. You get the sense that Amelia is more worldly wise. She's probably older, full of experience, and therefore cynicism. She is not in a good marriage, so she's bringing that whole experience and frame of reference to the conversation. And as the play unfolds, this becomes even more clear. The rest of the dialogue is Amelia's diatribe about men and her proto-feminist justification for the behavior of women as reflecting the ills done to them. She catalogs these ills, which include beating and cheating. Men get tired of women, so they exchange them for newer, younger models. 
The sensory imagery is interesting too, which we see a lot of in this play. Here we get taste used to describe the likenesses between men and women. Women have palates and appetites too. The word and notion of appetite often refers in this period to sexual desire. So actually, this is a very bold feminist ideal in a world like Shakespeare's England where women were expected to be chaste, silent and obedient, more docile and certainly more modest than men were. We have a woman declaring in a public playhouse that women want and like sex too. And why not? This is extraordinary. Our performer for Othello's speech to the Senate was Keith Hamilton Cobb, author of American Moor. American Moor is a play that uses Othello as a lens to think about Shakespeare, about being a black actor, and about the experience of black men in America. The following is Mr. Cobb's reflection on the play Othello. In discussions of Othello, we will need to begin with a play written in England in the year we believe of Queen Elizabeth's death, that is to say 417 years ago. We will need to begin with a play now so far removed from its original colloquial context that nothing remains as relevant other than its depictions of human nature, which are sometimes accurate, other times not so much. Human nature does not evolve. We are currently the same essential animals that we were in the 16th and 17th centuries. We still see ourselves in the behavior of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, which is what allows them to endure. Inarguably, the playwright was extraordinary, and yet genius in and of itself is neither sacrosanct nor infallible. In 1603, as today, one aspect of basic human nature was to allow truth to fall prey to agenda. It is so innate a trait that it is often exhibited inadvertently. Shakespeare need not have been conscious of what his agenda actually was in order to skew perception and presentation towards what was, for any number of reasons, more comfortable for him and his audience alike in the historical moment. Of agendas, he had several. There were financial agendas and political agendas. Surely each of these influenced the other. And there were also agendas of identity, which is to say, most simply, and here I paraphrase Anis Nin, and no doubt countless others, not seeing things as they are, but as we are. Thus, when Shakespeare decided to appropriate a story about an African-descended man, a presence not new, but still fairly uncommon in the Elizabethan frame of reference, the result was bound to be rife with inaccuracy and untruth. Othello, is a play about an African brown man written by an English white man from a story written by an Italian white man. What could go wrong? Exacerbating the issues, at least for my 21st century sensibilities, even while human nature, the focus of all drama, has gone unchanged, is the superficiality of early modern stagecraft and dramatic writing. I am bound to be pilloried for calling it superficial. Is there a better term, I wonder? All that I actually mean to say is that conventions of drama that were wholly acceptable to early modern audiences require in the present day so huge a suspension of disbelief as to render unwatchable for me much of Shakespearean theatre. 
the ages of scholarship that have inundated the Shakespearean canon have not rectified this problem for me. It is very much like the Old Testament Bible, inasmuch as the original texts in Aramaic and Hebrew were written for a specific people experiencing some specific things at a particular historical moment. More than a thousand years later, after endless translation and transcription, influenced by multiple agendas and irretrievably removed from original context, there are those who will call it the irrefutable word of God. Such is the case with Shakespeare's Othello. For all that there is to admire about the intricacies of some of the play's characters, for which the playwright is rightly lauded, Othello began as a bad play, or at least a play that would only reflect its period's early evolving perspectives on love, race, and the ethics surrounding various interpersonal relationships in its society. The plausible thread of its narrative is so frayed and weak that it will not legitimately support the weight of its tragic conclusions, and it has only grown increasingly ridiculous with the distance in time it has traveled from the context of Elizabethan acceptance that it was born into. To sit and read it from some quarto or first folio at the Folger Shakespeare Library is to commune with what it was. To watch it played now as it was then written and come away feeling as though one has taken in something of redeeming contemporary cultural value can only again begin to beg the question of whether what one is seeing is as it is or as he or she is. More often than not, audiences sitting for contemporary productions of Othello tend to laugh as much as recoil in horror at what was originally intended to be a tragedy, as one would imagine crimes of passion should be. And it bears noting that for a tragedy, suspiciously, Shakespeare depended in its construction upon several established elements of comedy. I am left to wonder if these elements weren't employed only to make the non-white tragic hero appear particularly pathetic in his fall. Of course, I have no irrefutable knowledge of the cultural or personal perspective that motivated him in the writing of this play or any other. I cannot indict Shakespeare outright, and I have no desire to. I can, however, point to Leontes, the white king of Sicilia in The Winter's Tale, who suffers no such utter indignities as does Othello for his even less explicable flight of irrational jealousy. Leontes looks upon his wife Hermione, playing hostess to his friend Polixenes, and mayhem immediately ensues. He requires no villainous instigator to incessantly aggravate his jealousies for an entire act. It is drawn from nothing and wreaks havoc, and yet all ultimately live happily ever after. The Winter's Tale is not technically a tragedy, so one may fairly accuse me of comparing apples and oranges. But it is, like Othello, a story drawn from another piece of fiction, with the playwright having license to make of the characters what he pleases. Why did he please to make Othello as ridiculous as he did? I think the least that can be said is that a black other in Elizabethan society would have been an easy mark. Contemplating the laughter, I'm not at all sure that contemporary audiences are buying into Othello's poor depiction of black masculinity. 
Obliviousness to racial bias in our culture is so deeply endemic that a, a white audience might hardly find occasion to care. For those who attend the American theater at all anymore, it's equally possible that they might attend a performance of Othello the way I, as a teenager, attended midnight showings of the movie Mommy Dearest, a piece of cinema so exaggerated in its depictions of some of the most aberrant aspects of human behavior as to render it nothing but camp, regardless of any former intention, and an evening's diversion to revel in the outrageous. Whether contemporary productions of Othello are taken seriously by theater makers and audiences or not, they remain for me an anomaly of American theater culture. Why do we do it? Hamlet is a far superior play. So is Romeo and Juliet, for that matter, and the other 50% or so of the canon that anybody attempts to regularly produce. No one produces the two noble kinsmen because it is not a very interesting or a very good play. But somehow, Othello, with all of its utter implausibility, remains in the stageable top ten. I am an African-American male actor, and no one ever asked me to consider any of those other plays in any way and to anywhere near the extent to which Othello has been forced into my consciousness throughout my professional life, not as an aspiration, but as the most plausible option. Life is frightening, and it compels those alive to seek safety. A look back through history will reveal the wrangling of men and women for power, position, and anything that they perceive would create for them a life less frightening. One might need to look closely, as what has come to look to us like simply being alive is really a perpetual striving for life. That striving could be as unremarkable as seeking to secure a daily wage, or as extraordinary as seeking the presidency. But it is all the same striving. People seek purpose to define life for them, because definition is less frightening than the unquantifiable. They seek reasons, but life is largely reasonless. It is as unjust as it is absurd, and we human animals clown about perceiving ourselves to be not only intrinsic to it, but at the very center of it. The more absurd and unjust our world becomes, the more ethically unhinged are the strivings for safety of the human animal in the face of it. The early moderns did that too. Othello does it, and certainly Iago does it, and perhaps to a less obvious extent, so do the four other major characters in the play. Every human actor on the world stage is engaged in this play. Shakespeare said that, and in his play, Characters are generally all engaged in this most recognizable of human engagements. In acting school, we would have called it pursuing our objectives. But we called it that because we were learning to imitate life, learning to portray people in the process of chasing purpose or comfort or safety, leveling as much intention and self-determination as each might muster, along with whatever requisite of untenable rationale required to muster it, on the navigation of a journey through the unquantifiable and absurd, terrifying reasonlessness of living. In Othello, I am acutely aware of the six main characters grasping at comfort, 
purpose as they navigate the absurdity of life. What makes them unequal is the extent to which their individual human striving is well written. That is to say, some are written far less realistically than others, and the eponymous hero least realistically of all. And I wonder why. I am an actor, and as such, my interest in any play is its playability. How does it work? With me. For me. With respect to Shakespeare, much more of it tends to work for me as literature than it does as performance. That is to say, I can read it and appreciate its literary value much more easily than I can find truth in the work as living theater. That is at least with regard to how it is being most currently performed. As an African-American actor, I find it lamentable that the play towards which I have been most frequently pointed, after the works of August Wilson, of course, and a singular memorable work by Lorraine Hansberry, is a role for a black man, yet one so poorly depicted in his humanity as to be nearly, if not utterly, beyond redemption. Be that as it may, there is a desire as a black man, I should say as this black man, to redeem him, to care for him, even if it is impossible to like him. Other black actors might find it easy to ignore him and his play. That option has been suggested to me more than once, implying that neither Othello nor Shakespeare is worthy my effort. Those voices might be right. Others still might rise to the playing of him however he is represented on the page and make the best of it, simply do their jobs, which I find admirable. But if one can neither embrace it nor let it go, the third option might be just to keep seeking for a third option and hope to find some purpose in the pursuit. An actor does not play a villain. He does not play a clown or a dope or a failure. He plays a person in pursuit of positive ends, even if that person is the only one who perceives those ends as positive. Othello is hamstrung in this pursuit by a playwright who does not support him nearly as much as he supports his antagonist. Othello really never stands a chance, though hardly for the reasons that scholars often espouse. He is miswritten, plain and simple. And mine is most likely a lost cause. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Keith Hamilton Cobb for Othello, Her Father Loved Me. Anton Lesser for Iago, That Cassio Loves Her. Dame Harriet Walter for Desdemona and Amelia, I Would Not Do Such a Wrong. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber's Shakespeare After All. Susan Snyder's Othello, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith's This is Shakespeare, and the following editions of Othello, the 2016 Norton Shakespeare, the 2016 Arden Shakespeare, and the 2003 New Cambridge Shakespeare. 
For full details on these sources, see our course webpage at shakespeareforall.com. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.